Good morning, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is alive, risen from the dead. We thank you that he is alive among us as he was in the earliest Christian communities. We pray you would open our hearts to hear him this morning and you would change us. Amen. Pen and I were doing some rearranging of the uh, house the other day and at one point uh, Pen turned to me and said, do you think we still need this? And I looked and she was holding up the DVD player in her hand. Uh, We'd had it plugged in the whole time, just sitting there underneath the TV, looking a little sad, looking a little lonely, longing for the good old days when, you know, family members would crack open a DVD case and breathe on the disc and clean it with a cloth with their shirt, slide it in and hope that it's not going to jump around. Uh, Absolutely not, I said. Let's get rid of it. Who uses DVDs anymore? That's one technology that's now completely superseded. And thinking back to other technologies like this, I, I remember cassette tapes as a kid. They were awful, weren't they? And melting your car and you have to wind them up with a pencil. They're the worst audio technology that we've ever invented. Uh, long superseded, long irrelevant. Uh, vinyl records haven't died out and that's because their audio quality is still superior to anything that we've been able to produce since, at least for the home, and they, they kind of look cool as well. So um, they, they've lasted. But remember fax machines. What about pages? You know those little things that doctors used to wear on their belts and used to go off all the time? Um, I still remember in church using overhead projectors um, to run song words. All these things have gone the way of irrelevance, all superseded by something better. Um, changing the topic a little, sl- little uh, bit, but along the same lines. Uh, what about ancient paganism? You know, Western society used to worship gods like Zeus, Athena, and Mars, Venus. Um, most scholars think that it died by about the ninth century completely, and it didn't die by force, didn't die by conquest. It died because it just wasn't relevant anymore. It just had no appeal for the people at that point. Have you ever wondered about the future of the church? Have you ever had that pang of worry that what we have, what we are a part of, may one day go the way of the fax machine and the DVD player, consigned to the bin of irrelevance? Of course, we're here this morning because we don't believe the church is irrelevant at all. We are its members. But what about out there? What about the other thousands upon thousands of people who make up this parish and this city? What would happen to St Philip's if we press the fast-forward button on our congregations? We skip forward 30, 40 years. Do we we have a viable church? And yet St Philip's in the diocese is one of the really healthy ones. We have kids and youth ministry that's the envy of so many other parishes. It's unusual. And we exist in a diocese that hasn't started a new church for close to 30 years, and yet we've closed many. What do we do? What is the future and the hope of the church? The thing is that we're not actually all that alone in our worries. It's not just institutions like the church that have to face these kind of questions. Human community in general faces questions like this in every generation. What is our future? I grew up in the 80s and that was the decade where the youth worried about instant and total nuclear annihilation. Today we seem to have our choice of ways to imagine the end of human community, even human life. Uh, Maybe a new pandemic, climate change leading to food and water insecurity and food wars. I read a couple of weeks ago in the media an article talking about 
a quite serious discussion about the risks of artificial intelligence, the possibility that AI would grow conscious and wipe out human life. Uh, even aside from the, the kind of catastrophic imagination, maybe modern life will bring an end not to humanity as such, but to community. Loneliness, one of the most serious health challenges in our country and, and increasing despite our interconnectedness, apparently. Families are smaller, broken relationships are common, and in the midst of all our wealth and prosperity and opportunity, there seems to be a pervasive melancholy through our communities. So what do we do? Today we, uh, we land on a reading in the book of Acts that gives us this beautiful picture of human flourishing and community. Gives us a, a picture of the kind of community I think that we really long for and that we're created for. It's a picture of a glimpse of what we would call the kingdom of God. I think it was since my early 20s that I've really liked growing plants. Um, I've never described it as gardening as such because I've never really had a garden, but I, my parents gave me a chili plant for a birthday one year in my early 20s, and since then I've, every year I've almost grown something. Uh, chilies or herbs. I was into bonsais for many years. And, and one of the things that I think is really exciting about um, growing plants is when you've planted seeds and, and that, that moment where you look and you see the shoots rise above the surface, uh, I don't know about you, I get really excited about that. My heart beats faster in that moment. Um, it, it only has two tiny leaves. It's so fragile, but it holds so much promise. It tells you that the seeds germinated and flourishing is, is the future. And the picture of the church in, church in Acts here is like a shoot. It holds so much promise for the future and for our life together. It's a story that, uh, that exists as something of a summary passage. The writer Luke uses these quite a bit to connect more detailed stories. It's a summary of what life was like in the earliest Christian community in Jerusalem. And it's this glowing picture. I'm going to read it again. We just had it read, but I want to read it again just so it's fresh in our minds. Um, Acts 2 from verse 42. Please just ignore the, uh, the heading in the middle. The, uh, our translation puts a heading in an awkward spot. We're just going to ignore that and pretend it's not there. So Acts 2 verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs are being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. It's a well-known reading. If you've been in Christian community for a little bit of time, you've probably come across it. Uh, it's well known because it's such a glorious picture of what our community could look like, a glorious picture of, of missional, spirit-filled church. And it's a picture that's inspired many churches and parishes and Christian movements worldwide across history to try to make our communities look more like this. And the opening sentence, verse 42, is something of a heading for the rest of it. So we're going to really bounce off that, that verse this morning from that opening sentence and explore the meaning of the whole section and its meaning for our lives. The first thing we're told is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They had a shared way of looking at the world. They had stories and teachings about the meaning of their lives, their purpose, the future of the world, how to live in the present, and the shared hope that they had. 
They had the apostles with them, physically, the eyewitnesses to Christ and his story. And these teachers, these apostles, gave them their community stories and identity. I don't know if you've ever wondered, I certainly have, what would, uh, what would Paul say, the Apostle Paul say, if he turned up St. Philip's? What would Peter or Matthew think of what we do here? You know, if only the apostles were still with us, they could guide us, I think. But we haven't really lost the apostles. Their teachings were, thankfully, written down, and they're written down in what's called the New Testament. We too can devote ourselves to the teachings of the apostles. But what is that teaching exactly? What were they really on about? If you drill down again and again throughout the New Testament, the core of it all is that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the thread that holds all the apostles' teaching together, that Jesus Christ is God come to us, the Lord and the Saviour. Uh, Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the resurrection of the dead. Jesus is our hope. That's the apostles' teaching. And I think that that should function as something of a criticism of our churches today. It's not quite enough for us to say, yeah, we're a Bible church. This is entirely possible that we can find ourselves celebrating the Bible, drawing many teachings out of it, but failing to frame our thinking and living around the core teaching of the apostles that Jesus Christ is the Lord and the Saviour. You know, back to a, a, a different gardening illustration, you could, uh, you could grow some plants and, and cultivate and fertilise your soil, you could put the plants out into full sun with a little shade over in summer, you could do a fantastic job of pruning and grafting and, and this whole time forget about your core activity of watering the plant and you're going to kill them all as a result. You've, you've missed the, the most basic care need. You missed the point of it. And in relation to, to church communities, I'm not just talking about preachers, you know, Kieran and I and, and whoever else preaches um, here and beyond. I'm not just talking about preachers at all. Every one of us, I think, should frame our faith and our thinking and our hearts around the core message that Jesus is our Lord and Saviour. Because it's from that theme, that idea, that all aspects of the way we live as Christians flows. Uh, service to others and forgiveness and evangelism and daily devotions and spiritual gifts and all of it flows from Jesus his Lord. Devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching because what you'll find is that that momentous good news is where you find peace and forgiveness and strength to live the life of faith. You'll find the love of God and his grace and his kindness in Christ at the core. We read on in the sentence, and we read that they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, this word isn't all that easy to translate. It basically means sharing. They shared their lives together in community, like family. There's an example of it given in verse 44 and 45, where it says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They shared all things. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds as any had need. They saw their life in this community as community, as family, not individuals together. They took seriously Jesus and were carrying on Jesus' teachings about caring for the poor and his example of doing that. And so they saw their property as not theirs to own exclusively. Now, it's not 
quite a picture of some ancient form of communism. This isn't a forced redistribution of wealth. Instead, you have something far more beautiful. You have people voluntarily and joyfully selling their possessions, selling their properties to care for those who are in need in their communities. Early church had a real reputation for this and did this for hundreds of years. Uh, Many of you would have heard about the persecutions of the church in the early 4th century. Um, One of the stories we know about this comes from um, court records of the Roman officials. And uh, there's a story that goes that they burst into, the Romans burst into a church in what is modern-day Algeria, and they went, they ransacked the church looking for things of value. And uh, they, they found a storage room below the church, and they, they recorded what they found there, which was 16 tunics for men, 82 dresses for women, 13 pairs of men's shoes, 47 pairs of women's shoes, 19 pairs of, sorry, 19 peasant capes, and 10 vats of oil and wine. This was a storage room full of items that would be distributed to those in need, distributed to the poor. The philanthropic project of the ancient church was like nothing the world had ever seen. And Christians were known and criticised in the sources for an outrageous, supposedly immoral generosity. I wonder whether that's our reputation today. I can tell you one thing. In, In my classroom, I think the questions I get about the immorality of Christians. Things like, so why does God hate gays? Why are Christians misogynists? Why does the church abuse children? You know, distortions, misunderstandings abound in those questions. But why don't I have any distortions or misunderstandings to do with how generous we are? Because that was the criticism of the ancient Christians. Why has a student ever asked me, so why are Christians so so?" dumb with their wealth? Why are they so stupid with giving their money away? Maybe the apostles' teaching of Jesus as the resurrected Lord hasn't quite hit our hearts enough. Or maybe I should move on before things get too uncomfortable. (laughs) Uh, It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Uh, This early community devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. It's mentioned twice in the story, actually, verse 42 there and then verse 46. Um, Some some think that it it just means that they had meals together, and it probably does at least mean that. But the breaking of bread was actually really a technical term in the first few centuries of the church. It's a technical term for what we now call the Lord's Supper. We actually have a few names for it, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, the Eucharist, the Mass... Their term in the early church was the breaking of bread. And it's used here, and I think the earliest readers would have seen the sacrament in that term. It tells us that Holy Communion really matters. During the Reformation of the church in the 16th century, one of the criticisms the Catholics made of the Protestant churches was that, you know, if you're going to teach that we're saved nothing by, by not what we do, but by grace and faith alone, then... It implies we don't really need the Mass anymore. We don't need Holy Communion. And in, in some ways, it, it proved correct. There, there were Protestant churches that, that minimised or, or even eradicated the practice of Holy Communion from their worship because they just didn't see it as necessary anymore. But here we have the earliest uh, clear example of a spirit-filled community breaking bread, sharing in Holy Communion regularly because they saw it as really important for their life together. Our own Anglican prayer book 
calls this sacrament an outward and visible sign of an inward grace or an effective sign of grace. God feeds us in this meal. He feeds us spiritually and bodily, connects us to Christ and his gospel, and he does it as a community together, connecting us to each other. It's a natural and expected practice of the Christian community and one of the primary ways God cares for us. And so we should value it and cherish it and protect its practice as part of our life together. I love that we do it every week here at St Philip's. They uh, devoted themselves in, at the end of verse 42 to the prayers. You'd say they prayed a lot. They were praying church. But it, it, it means it has a bit more detail than just that. They devoted themselves to the prayers. Not they devoted themselves to prayer, as the NIV puts it, but the prayers. It's a little strange how it's put. The way it's worded suggests that that the prayers they were praying are probably community prayers, probably set prayers. They likely inherited a bunch of these from their Jewish worship, and they were probably including new Christian prayers like the Lord's Prayer, and they're praying these together as a community. And we live in a world today that tends to value what we like to call authenticity. And so sometimes I've heard prayers like this, community set prayers that we pray together, um, criticised for not being sincere, for being too formal, for not being real for the person. But there's nothing inherently inauthentic about a community, a set prayer, unless you're inauthentic about it. You know, Christians through history have found that these prayers help us they, they teach us how to pray. They, they give us words to pray when we feel too tired or weak and, and words that join us with other Christians in our community and Christians across time and place. Now, spontaneous and heartfelt and individual prayers, of course, have their place as well. But here we're alerted to community prayers, prayers we pray together, we, uh, devotion to God and petition to God in our community life. These are liturgical prayers. Uh, early on in my to give an extreme example in my Christian faith, I was invited by a friend to attend his Bible study at a different church and it came time to pray at the end of the night and everyone stood up. I thought, what's going on? And they put music on, uh, a cassette player, by the way, and, um, and everyone started playing, uh, praying at the same time, speaking at the same time. There was like 10 people all st- talking at the same time. That's not community prayer. That's a bunch of individuals praying in the same room. Uh, individual prayer is fantastic, but community prayers are prayers we pray as a community that we pray as one body to God. That's what it means to devote ourselves to the prayers. Um, and then Luke um, goes on to talk about the mood in this community, and the mood's one of fear and joy. Now, fear, we've got to think about positively. Our translation in verse 43 puts it as awe, and I think that's, that's basically right. Uh, they were awestruck. They had fear of God because they saw wonders, the wonders he was doing at the hands of the apostles who were carrying on the miracles of Jesus that showed that his kingdom had truly come. Awe of God, wonder what, what God was doing among us. And all this all was combined with, with joy in verse 46 as they ate with glad and generous hearts, hearts full of praise to God. It's a beautiful picture of what the church was and what the church should be. But whenever I've heard this story explained, it, it's almost always lifted out of its context, uh, basically what I've just done. Um, now, I don't, I don't know about you, but as I read through this kind of story, I, I, f- I do feel encouraged and a bit excited, but at the same time, 
I feel a bit discouraged, a bit despondent, because I don't know about you, but I've never seen a church like this in my life. Uh, I've seen churches that are more likely to fight about music than sell their possessions to help each other. I've seen churches more devoted to having an impressive-looking service or you know, intellectual or dynamic preaching than they are to the gospel. I've seen churches where the mood isn't awe, but awkwardness. And I could go on with a whole lot of other examples. But I do find an encouragement here because Luke knew this too. You know, in the context of the book of Acts, the church even then is messy. Three chapters after this, you read of a couple who lie about their giving to the poor. And as the story goes on, you see that Acts is, is, is constantly um, wrestling with this major disagreement in this church, this big fight. It's almost a structural split and it's, it, the, the, the fight's carried through to all of Paul's letters. And what it's about is what ethnic groups should be included in the church. Luke knows that the church is messy, and I don't think this story is here to be a picture of what all churches could or should be. But it does function as a kind of critique of our churches today. You know, imagine, imagine a conversation. Let's say you're, you're with a group of friends and you're having a conversation about, say, the voice to parliament coming up. And what do you think someone says? And one person gives their thoughts and someone raises some different thoughts and one person raises one point and one person says, oh, I heard this about it and so on. And then someone in the conversation goes, I really love donuts. It would be really weird. It would be kind of crazy. It wouldn't be in line with the conversation. It wouldn't fit the pattern or the rules of the conversation. And Luke here is reminding us of where the conversation of the history of the church began. We want to be in line with that conversation. We don't want to be the donut person. We want, to find our, we want to find ourselves talking about the same topics, functioning within that conversation and that continuum. And that's what this, how this passage functions for us, I think. It gives us the, a picture of the patterns and topics and ways of life of our community. As I draw um, toward the end, I, I do want to point out the, and really focus on the final sentence of the story, which just says, day by day, the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. There's so many ways that Luke could have put this. Day by day, they grew their church. Day by day, the church grew. Day by day, they saved those around them. But this final summarising statement, the final conclusion, reminds us that, no, day by day, the Lord, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The Lord added it. God's at work here. And how does the Lord add to their number those who are being saved? By producing in their lives the fruit of the Spirit in their community. It's God who gave them the gospel, who gave them hearts wanting to hear it and to proclaim it again and again. It's the Spirit that gave them a willingness to share their money and possessions out of love for each other. Christ who gave the sacraments that feed us spiritually and connect us to himself. The Spirit who enables us to pray. Christ who carries those prayers to the Father. And it's God that brings a growth in his kingdom through that fruit. Like everything with our loving God, it's about grace, about God's kindness, God's gift, free gift. He's the power to change in our community and in our hearts. We long for a better reality. Church longs for a better future. And society does too. 
We long for a community as it should be, without divisions, without hatreds, betrayals, pain. We long for communities of joy and hope rather than threat on the horizon. The real beauty of the story today, the beauty that isn't stated but is so clear, is that the picture of the church here in Acts is a glimpse of the future kingdom of God, where all people are gathered around the throne of Christ. All people know and really feel what love for thy neighbour really feels like. Where all people fall in awe before the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God, with joyful hearts, devoted forever to the good news that he is risen and now God is all in all. So yes, the church has a future beyond 30 or 40 years and a future where we'll be together forever around the throne of God. Human community has a future, a future where we'll be together around the throne of Christ. If this picture in Acts is the beginning of the conversation of the church, the future kingdom of resurrected life is where that conversation ends. And through it all, Christ is at the centre. Amen.